Now I should tell the story of Chamisha Batavis. Hey, Davis. And tonight we'll forbring about it. Okay, I, I'm going to be blunt and honest. I rarely am, but just for this one occasion, I'll be blunt and honest. Um, for me, personally, it's the holiest day of the year. As a chassid for sure, there is no date more important to a Lubavitcher chassid alive today than this. So I get crazy when this day comes. I get crazy because people say, should we say Tachnun? I say, really Tachnun? I say, once you become a Bobaver. You already are a Bobaver, you just don't know it. You say Tachnun? You just kiss me, you say Tachnun. But I'm going to try and contain myself and not uh, emote. I did that yesterday. I did it Tuesday. I already, I, I twice uh, did therapy in front of a group of people getting out all my emotion about people who don't appreciate just how serious and important this date is. I'm just going to say one point of uh, philosophy and then I'm going to push it. I'm going to try my best unemotionally to tell you the story of this one. And the one point is that the question, as the Rebbe understood it, was, it was a question of Oid Yosef Chai, with a question mark. Is Yosef still alive? Yosef means the Rebbe. The Rebbe meant the Friedrich Rebbe, whose name happens to be Yosef. But that was the issue. Oid Yosef Chai. Ha Oid Ovi Chai, is my father still alive? And the story of the Svarim, from the Rebbe's vantage point, was the question of Oid Yosef Chai, is Yosef still alive? And then, the Didanotzach is a statement without a question. Oid Yosef Chai, Yosef is still alive. He's the king in all of the world, all of Egypt. And the Parsha of Tuesday, which was Chamisha Batavis, it finishes, finds out. The Yosef Tzaddik is still alive, says Rashi, It says in Chazal, says in Rashi, that when a Tzaddik is depressed, he loses his Ruach HaKadosh. Twenty two years, Yankav Avinu lost his Ruach HaKadosh. Because he didn't know the situation with Yosef. And when he finds out that Yosef Atzadik is still alive, Rashi says in the Chitas of Tuesday of this week that in Mem Zion, Hey Tevis was on a Tuesday, but Chi Ruach Yankavim, the spirit of Yankavinu comes to life, says Rashi, Shorts, I love Ruach HaKadosh. So when you think about that in relationship with us, and the Rebbe spoke about it, the Rebbe said, He didn't say, hey, I got back my Ruach HaKadosh, I don't know what it means. The Rebbe loses his Ruach HaKadosh, I don't know what it means, the Rebbe gets his Ruach HaKadosh back. But this is certain, that the Rebbe connected the, the victory of the Danotzach to the Vachir Ruach HaKadosh. So, the question was, is Yaisa Vatzadik still alive? And the answer was, what was the bridge between the question and the answer? The bridge between the question and the answer is Yankav Avinu Loi Mace. Yankav Avinu doesn't die. Why Yankav Avinu Loi Mace? Mazare Bachayim Avhu Bachayim. If his children are still alive, he's still alive. This is the story of Hamisha Batavis in a nugget. Where someone comes along and says, if Friedrich ever passed away, that was over. Finished. No more. And the Rebbe says, what are you talking about? He's more alive today than he was 35 years ago. 
And the Sad Shekhenegit says, what do you mean? I was by the Levaya. And the Rebbe says, and when you saw the Rebbe's goof, you saw the Rebbe? You know what a Rebbe is? A Rebbe's whole Metzius is a Lukus and Ruchnius. And as long as the Hasidim go in the ways of the Rebbe, the Rebbe lives. So the question is, is the Friedrich Rebbe still alive? Meaning, are we going in the ways of the Friedrich Rebbe? And the answer is, he's absolutely alive. Why? Because as long as Chassidim go in the ways of the Rebbe, the Rebbe lives. I have a Amstandish cousin who gets very nervous about the fact that we talk about the Rebbe being Mashiach. So someone made a terrible mistake of telling him to come and ask me what I thought about it. I remember his face dropping when I answered him. He says, Why would you think Rebbe is Mashiach? He said, Yeah, every Chassid is Mashiach. Yeah, but maybe it could be somebody else. Maybe it could be Dovid Malach. So I gave him a very simple answer. I said, listen, it's so many and so many years since Gimel Thomas. Like how many years since Gimel Thomas? It's 22 years plus since Gimel, 30, 28 years plus. It's, the numbers make me crazy. Since Gimel Thomas, yeah? If the Rebbe's influence in the world would stop, I would agree with your question. But the Rebbe's influence in the world is growing. Every year it's more. This is why Chassidim say the Rebbe is Mashiach as opposed to David HaMelech or the Baal Shem Tev or the Rambam. Because the Rebbe is living on earth. You see it by Matthias. That's the difference. Now I don't want to talk about the Rebbe being Mashiach. It's not my subject for this morning. But that's the Pshat in the Sfarim. That the Taino was, Fyrkeva passed away. And the Rebbe's answer was, Fyrkeva passed away? I see more life now than I saw 30 years ago. And guess what? Just to play a game of Deshiri Shumas, there were 36 years between when the Rebbe became Rebbe and the critic of the Svarim and the Didai Natsach, and it's 36 years since Didai Natsach until now. It's, it's, it's exactly 36 years. Every year the Rebbe is more living. And the, the story of the Svarim is that the life of a Rebbe is defined by Ruchnias. So this is the end of my Ruchnias the Kapitch. Now, Bolinedra, I'm Poshet going to tell you the story. I'm going to Poshet tell you the story, how it happened. Physically, the way I understand it, of course, the beginning of the story is that in the history of Chabad, there were a number of Rebbes who passed away. And as a rule, when a Rebbe passed away, there was a division of his estate. There was a division of his estate. Now, I don't know what happened when the Alter Rebbe passed away. Were the Alter Rebbe's forum, the Alter Rebbe had three sons. Were the Alter Rebbe's Svarim divided amongst his three sons? Were the Alter Rebbe's Nechaz divided amongst three sons? Or did the Mittal Rebbe take it all? We don't have a record of that. I don't know. When the Mittal Rebbe passed away, the Mittal Rebbe had two sons. The Tzemach Tzedek wasn't even a son. Tzemach Tzedek was a son-in-law. What happened to the wealth of the Mittal Rebbe? What happened to the library of the Mittal Rebbe? There's no record. We don't know. But when the Tzemach Tzedek passed away, there, there is a record. When the Tzemach Tzedek passed away, there were six sons left. Tzemach Tzedek had seven sons and two daughters. But one passed away during his lifetime, would leave six. And there was a dentata over the Yerusha. The three biggest Rabbonim in Lubavitch. You imagine a Rav sitting at a dentata with the Tzemach Tzedek's children. Reb Peretz Chein. Reb Dentatus Chesed. Shnei Zalman. Fratkin, Dalbine Rav. And Rabbi Yisuf Tamarkin, these were Go'ine Oilo, these were Chassidim who knew the whole Torah. And they presided over the Din Torah between the six brothers and they, they argued over the Yerusha. 
The Reb Marash was by far the youngest. And his older brother, who was the biggest London, says to him, I don't understand, you're 32 years old. How do you know so much nigla? How do you know so much nigla? So the Rebbe Marash said famously, Dubas elter and deine yarden, ich ben elter dem tatens yarden. You're older because you lived more years. I'm older because I was born. My father was older when I was born. And there was a big, uh, I don't want to use the word fight, but it was very unpleasant. And the Rebbe Marash was made nefesh. The Tzamech Tzedek had lit, left certain instructions about his the state that he wanted the Ksavim, the manuscripts to stay in Lubavitch, and the Rebbe was Mesa Nefesh to keep the Ksavim in Lubavitch. So there was a Chalukah of a Yerush. There's also evidence which was brought into the court, from what I understand, when the Rebbe Marash passed away, that there was also the, the division of the estate. There were three brothers, and there was a Dintera. Um, when After Gimel Tamas, they published the Rebbe's journal, the Rebbe's the Rishimis, they published almost everything. They left out a few very, very, very controversial lines. But one of the controversial lines, which left out the Rebbe's Rishimah, is that the Fidik Rebbe told the Rebbe about a particular person that he sided with the Razor about the Dintere. And the Fidik Rebbe wouldn't forgive him. When the Rebbe Marash passed away, there was a Dintere, and this person sided with the Rebbe Rashab's older brother. This is the precedent that when the Rebbe passed away, there was a, a, there was a, a division of the estate. But it's also clear that the Reb Marash felt there shouldn't be a dentator. He went along with it, but there shouldn't have been a dentator. He should have stayed in Lubavitch. And the same is true with the Reb Rashab. When the Reb Marash passed away, the Reb Rashab went along with the dentator, but if, if, if he would have had his way, there would not have been a chalukah. The whole thing should have stayed by him in Lubavitch. The Friedrich Rebbe came to America, and he immediately incorporated Lubavitch. The Friedrich Rebbe understood America, and he understood that in America, money is everything. And you could kill a person, and that's okay. You steal a dollar, you're a terrible person. America is obsessed about money. And the Fiyadik understood that in America, everything has to be above board. So as soon as he got here, he incorporated Lubavitch. Everything was legal and above board. There was no such thing as getting paid from the Rebbe off the books. No such thing as If you work for Americas, they deduct whatever you need, you know. The Rebbe was incredibly careful about that, always, from the day he got here, and there was no money in the bank. He immediately incorporated Lubavitch. The parent organization of Lubavitch in America was called Agudas Hasidi Chabad. Now, I'm, I'm starting to pitch this now. I want to see if I can stir the pot. <laughs> I want to see how much noise I can make in Lubavitch. Agudas Hasidi Chabad is 99 years old. The hundredth anniversary of Agudah Sidi Chabad is in a year from now. Tafereh Pei Dalad, 1924. There was a chassid by the name of Zelik Slonim, who was in New York, and he had the idea to incorporate Lubavitch Chassidim in America. He wrote to the Friedrich Rebbe, who was still living in Russia, and that's when Agudah. I would like to see if next year we could celebrate, the whole Lubavitch should celebrate a hundred years of Agudah Sidi Chabad. I feel that that's a, it's a significant milestone, and uh, I want you to be my... Tumblers, <laughs> in, in a year from now is the 100th anniversary of Aguch, Aguch and Chassidi Chabad. The Friedrich Rebbe got to America 16 years later, in 1940. Aguch and Chassidi Chabad already existed. Aguch and Chassidi Chabad had a charter, had a legal charter. Huh? Aguch and Chassidi Chabad literally means the union of Lubavitch Chassidi. In America in 1924, there were hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more people then than today who identified the Lubavitch Chassidim. Many of them not have been from. But don't you, not, don't you come to the Varbengen, you just kiss them and boy, they'll take your head off. They were, 
they had traditions. American Jews had a lot of traditions, but unfortunately they dropped the practices. Um, so a good, with a union of the Baba there was a Yid named David Shifrin who lived in America. He was in touch with tens of thousands of Jews all over America who were members of Agudah's Chassidic Chabad. Now, Agudah's Chassidic Chabad means the union of the Babacha Chassidim has what's called the Vad. Every organization needs leaders. So there's people who are the members of the Vad of Agudah's Chassidic Chabad. But Agudah's Chassidic Chabad means simply a union of the Babacha Chassidim. The Friedrich Rebbe got here. He rewrote the charter. Obviously, he made himself the president of Agudah's Chassidic Chabad. And when he bought 770, 770 was not registered to the Fiyadik Rebbe. 770 was registered to the owner of the building. 770 Eastern Parkway is a good Hasidic Chabad. They paid for the building, it's under their charter, and so on and so forth. One of the most compelling things is I have a tape, I have an audio tape, and I, I can find it on my computer if, if you press me. I'm, which basically means please press me so I should make to look for it so I can find it. Shmuel Isaac Popak, who's probably gone now about 10 years, told a story that when the Fiedek Rebbe bought 770, it was right before Rosh Hashanah, Tov Shin to Tov Shin Aleph, 1940, the Fiedek Rebbe called him in, he was a Lubavitcher boy. I mean, he was a modern boy, he didn't have a beard, he wasn't learning in yeshiva, I mean, he would become a multi-multi-millionaire, Shmuel Isaac, but he came from, his father was a big chassid, and the Fiedek Rebbe called him in, and the Fiedek Rebbe said, Shmuel Isaac, I want you to be the business manager of 770, I want you to manage the building. Make sure that the windows aren't broken, make sure the doors are locked, and make sure it's clean and neat. I mean, a public building, you know? What happens to a shul? Nobody owns it. The Rebbe said to him, you're in charge. I want you to make sure this building looks menschlich. And he told him, Fidek Rebbe told Isaac, every month come to me to take a check for rent. The Fidek Rebbe lived in 770 and paid rent. Why? Because the building wasn't his. It belonged to Gudas Chassidic Chabad. The Fidek Rebbe had a checking account which said Rabbi Joseph Isaac Schneerson and then there was another checking account the Gudas Chassidic Chabad and the Rebbe paid rent. And you can assume that if the Fidek Rebbe paid rent Mistamed Darashag who lived on the third floor also paid rent to live in their own house. Why? Because as soon as the Rebbe came to America the Rebbe understood how America is. Everything has to be on the table. Official. So he incorporated 770 not as personal property, as a good city Chabad. Now I want to ask you a question. The Rebbe Marash lived in Lubavitch, yeah? Who owned the, who owned the house the Rebbe Marash lived in? Who owned it? Who cared? <laughs> it wasn't an issue. It was a small shtetl. Nobody paid attention to anything or anybody. Of course it belonged to the Rebbe. But what, was, what did it mean it belonged to the Rebbe? In America, where everything has to be on the, everything has to be official, the Friedrich Rebbe set it up himself as soon as he got here. That the property of Lubavitch is not personal property, it's the property of the community of Lubavitch Hasidim, and their, their, their title is, their label is, their uh, official identity is Agudas Hasid Chabad. That's what they're called. Agudas Hasid Chabad, the union of Lubavitch Hasidim. When the Rebbe came to America, his library was left behind in Poland. And the Rebbe began to write letters to, to retrieve his library. Before the Rebbe left, before the Rebbe left, he, he packed up his library in 20 crates, big, big crates. Um, and he was hoping one day to have that library shipped to New York. I mean, the story with the Fiedek Rebbe's library. He had a library in Russia which was confiscated, which we don't have. Still was trying to get it now. And then there was this other library which the Rebbe had just purchased. And now when the Rebbe ran for the Nazis, he lost that second library. 
as soon as the war, but even during the war, but especially after the war was over, the Friedrich Rebbe wrote letters to the United States State Department writing, saying, Agudis Chassidi Chabad in America, which was a union of tens of thousands of members, has a precious treasure. It's a library which is a repository of the Jewish people, especially after the Holocaust. And that library is lost in Europe. I'm asking the United States government to do everything in its power to retrieve that library as a public trust of the Jewish people in America. And the United States took that seriously. They never had connections. They never had friends in high places. And they did what they had to do. And after the Second World War, that library was brought to New York. Now, if you know the happenstance, the Hashkoch Pratis, the Abishta's sense of humor, the way I understand it, the library was in 20 crates. 19 crates arrived. Those 19 crates were put into shelves in the basement of 770 where the Felix Rebbe's library was housed. The problem was the 20th crate was the most precious. The one crate that didn't get here had all the Ksav. The original Chassidus was lost. And in the 1960s and 1970s, some of these books started rolling into seven. People come to 770 and selling 770 a manuscript, two, three thousand dollars for a bichel of chassidus. And the Rebbe says, this is mine. Why am I paying for it? This is the Fidekeb's library. No one knew where it was. It took them years and years and years. And you know how book selling, it's a very dirty business. They would take a manuscript. You tear it in half. Now you got two manuscripts. Then you burn the edges. So you lose some of the words, but you make it look more expensive. You charge more money. You come to a Lubavitcher chassid, and you're selling him something which belongs to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You charge him hoin to your face. It's, 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 it's a rip-off on top of a rip-off on top of a rip-off. They eventually traced half of that 20th crate to the, a Warsaw library. And in 1974, the Rebbe sent people to Poland to, to microfilm that, that Ksovim. And one of the stories about the Shredish Kislev was that the books came back. The Ksovim came back a few days before the Rebbe went home. I heard from more than one person. The Rebbe went to the library to look at the Ksovim, and he was looking through the Ksovim, and as the expression is, as the Rebbe looked through the manuscript, you watched him heal, Pasha. Watched him heal. They got back the Ksovim. The physical copies or the microfilms? The originals, the microfilms they got in 74. After Gimel Tamos, the second half of that crate showed up in Russia. <laughs> I don't know how I got it to Russia, but that's where it showed up. And a lot of things have been published from that other half of that 20th crate. But the Friedrich Rebbe wrote letters saying that this library is the property of Agudas Chassidi Chabad. It's a public library. And it's, it's, it's a treasure of the Jewish people and the United States government should invest itself in retrieving this library and they did. Now, of course, one of the important little details about the Pasha Sasforim is that the, you know how lawyers work, right? Lawyers collect papers. Why? They charge by the hour. The more papers they collect, the more time it takes to collect them. So they came. The Rebbe met the lawyers a few times in the summer of 1985. So they came into They came into the, the Rebbe didn't meet them inside his room, but in front of his room with a cart, you know, a legal cart. You know those wheels you have shelves on this side, shelves on this side, full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers that they collected from the Rebbe's library, which proved our case that the Svartim are public, that the Svartim are not a private uh, property. The Rebbe walked out of his room holding one piece of paper. <laughs> and he said to the lawyers, this is all you need. And he said even more, all it is, all it can do 
is create haze over this. All you need is this one piece of paper. The judge, in his verdict, quotes that one piece of paper that the Rebbe gave them. It was a letter written in 1947, after the war, from the Friedrich Rebbe to a professor Marx. I think he was the bibliotheque at the JTS, the Jewish Theological, the big conservative seminary in New York, where the Rebbe writes to him that the library is the property of, of Lubavitcher Chassidim in America, goes to Chabad America, and he asks him to use whatever connections he has to retrieve the library. So the Rebbe came to this country, the Fiyidik Rebbe, and in full admittance, traditionally, the relationship between the Rebbe and the Chassidim <coughs> and his private property, his public property, was all very hazy. But when the Fiyidik Rebbe got to America, he made it all on board, all legal, kosher. Then the Fiyidik Rebbe passes away. In the last few years, a book was published by a Jew whose name is Meir Zayens. And he tells a story that I've never heard before. In the Friedrich Rebbe's Shabbos morning, he was a Bachan 770 at that time, and he was very close to the Rebbe. He hung around the Rebbe a whole day. That day, the day Friedrich Rebbe passed away. And he says as a witness, the moment Shabbos was over, the minute Maida was over, the Rebbe ran into the Friedrich Rebbe's office, and he opened up every drawer, he opened up every closet. The Rebbe was desperately looking for a tzavah. The Rebbe was looking for a will. And he didn't find it. No will of the Fidika was ever found. Was it written? I, I think that the Fidika wanted us to have his will. He would have figured out how to get it, pull it off. He was a big, he was, okay, he was on the ball, the Fidika, but he was not bad. He was pretty cool. I doubt it, but there are people who say that it's entirely possible that the Fidika's will was destroyed. I, I personally don't believe that. And again, it's just personal opinion. I know that the Fidik Rebbe was a, the kind of Hevra man. If he wanted there should be a will, he would have made sure the will was arranged. The fact of the matter is that the Rebbe looked for it as soon as Shabbos was over, and he did not find it. So the will of the Fidik Rebbe, and when I say the will, I mean what he wants, became a matter of conjecture. So first of all, you all know that in that one year there was a terrible, terrible, I don't know what word to use about succession, This is, now is not the time to talk about the parsha of Yud Shvat. There's a letter from the Rebbe where the Rebbe writes, to, there was a chosser who wrote the Rebbe a letter, and he says to the Rebbe, whether you want to be a Rebbe, don't want to be a Rebbe, it's your business. But you're the son-in-law of the Rebbe. And as the son-in-law of the Rebbe, you have a responsibility to chassidim. So the Rebbe writes back to him, he says, you know what's going on here, right? You know what's going on here in New York. The guy was living in Israel. You understand yourself, I'm not rushing into that. I don't, it was a mess. The family was in a feud. They wanted to, they wanted to make two Rebbes in Lubavitch. And the Rebbe didn't care. Take the whole thing, then they got some ice. But one thing, the Rebbe was not going to take on being a Rebbe in Lubavitch because it's a business. If you take on being a Rebbe in Lubavitch because it's a holy task. And I, I think it's fair to say, I think it's correct to say, I don't think this is an exaggeration. Chassidim changed the Rebbe's mind. Chassidim changed the Rebbe's mind. The Rebbe really was not interested in the position, especially since other people were very interested in the position. And Chassidim, like the Rebbe used to say, Chassidim make a Rebbe. Chassidim decide when the Rebbe is nostalgic and there's a complication about who should be the Malamokim, the determination of who's the next Rebbe is not a family affair. It's Chassidim make a Rebbe. And Chassidim made the Rebbe. And the moment the Chassidim made the Rebbe and the Rebbe agreed, he became a bad guy. Finished. 
He's not cooperating with the family. And it stayed that way forever. It's so hard to understand. It stayed that way forever. They never forgave him for it. When the Rebbe became Rebbe, Rabbi said, this is factual. When the Rebbe became Rebbe, the Rebbe took a very interesting position. There already were Moises Chabad all over the world. There were Moises Chabad in Israel, Moises Chabad in Europe, Moises Chabad in Australia, Moises Chabad in South America. And the Rebbe's line was, quote unquote, Men wird alt zunehmen und alt abgeben zurück. When the Rebbe became Rebbe, you had to turn in your keys. When the Rebbe became a Rebbe and you ran a Moise that carried the name Lubavitch, you had to officially resign and be rehired. In other words, the Rebbe wanted everybody who represented the name Lubavitch to understand that he's the boss. And that's how it was. And we know of instances where people didn't cooperate, they were denatated. The Rebbe fought about this. The Rebbe wanted everybody to know, you know, the Rebbe didn't take away anybody's autonomy. You know, the Rebbe's great genius is to leave people alone. You know, the magic of Lubavitch is the franchise system. Lubavitch is not controlled from the center. If Lubavitch was controlled from the center, it would be a hundredth its current size. The reason Lubavitch is so big because every Lubavitch works for himself, for the Rebbe, but independently. And the Rebbe did not take away people's independence, but he did want to establish the first day, I'm the boss. And figuratively, you had to hand in your keys and got them back. Until today, you work for the Friedrich Rebbe, now you work for me. He gave back the keys to everybody. There's a story, an unpleasant story, I'm going to say it without a name. There was a certain Yid who used to blow Shaifa by the Friedrich Rebbe. And when the Rebbe became a Rebbe, the Rebbe called him in, and the Rebbe told him how he should prepare himself to blow Shaifa. So he said to the Rebbe, you're telling me? Like, I don't know by myself. That man walked out the door and the Rebbe called somebody else. I want you to blow Shafer for me and he gave him instructions. True story. The Rebbe wanted everybody to understand that the Rebbe should stay the same, but there's a new boss. The painful thing is that he did it in all the Moises in the world. There were big Dinitata. You ask people what happened in Israel in the late, early 50s. There were big people didn't want to give in. People felt that they have a Moise, it's theirs. And the Rebbe said, if it carries the name Lubavitch, it's mine. Either take the name Lubavitch off, or leave the Moise, it's mine. They were denitated. The one place that Rebbe didn't do it, was right here. If the Rebbe had left it to us, if the Rebbe had led you 24 hours, Rebbe should close his eyes, just 24 hours. We would have gone into 770, we would have gone into that apartment on the second floor, we would have packed them up, the books and the furniture and Allah's Dink, and we would have moved them to a build, to a house on President Street, and the Rebbe would have moved into 770. This business that the Rashag lives upstairs in 770 and the Rebbe lives on President Street is unheard of. It's so obscene. Any other Hasidic group, any other Hasidic group, a Rebbe becomes Rebbe, he can't live in his own house because someone else is taking the apartment? What's this? You know why it didn't happen? Because the Rebbe wouldn't let you touch them. The Rebbe protected them. Why? Because he's protecting the honor of the Vedic Rebbe. So the whole Lubavitch Rebbe owned 770 and the library was a contention. And the Rebbe called in Chassidim from the very beginning, right away. And he says, I want you to know the Rebbe told three Chassidim, maybe 52. Until the library is by me, the Nesiyas is not bishleimus. Until I have the library, my Rabbistave is not complete. <coughs> Until I have the library, the Nesiyas is not complete. So they went upstairs and they went into the, to the people they had to go into. And they talked about the library. They said, sure, the Rebbe can have anything he wants. All he has to do is ask. 
Anything you want, just ask. So these three Chacham went back to the Rebbe. And they told the Rebbe, great news! Great, anything you want, you can have. All you got to do is ask. And the Rebbe, I don't understand. I have to ask for something that belongs to me? I have to ask for something that's mine? And it's not mine because it's mine. It's mine because I am the president of Agudah Siddiq Chabad. I'm the Rebbe Dinasi of Labavach Chassidim. Agudah Siddiq Chabad is the union of Labavach Chassidim. Who's the head of the union of Labavach Chassidim? The Rebbe. I'm sitting on that chair. I have to ask. In other words, people didn't even understand what the issue was. The Rebbe says, I have to ask. It's mine. It's not mine as a private person. It's mine because I am the president. I am the Nasi of Agudah Siddiq Chabad. And of course, the stories that go around is that in the, the Rebbe was a terrible Rebbe, you know that. He, was, he, was a, he ruined the whole the Rebbe business, he ruined it. You know how he ruined it? <laughs> With a fedora, Rachman al-Tzad. The Friedrich Rebbe, the Ness, he put on a streimel. No, the Friedrich Rebbe also for the first 10 years wore only a hat. You know, people don't know this. When the Friedrich Rebbe became a Rebbe, he didn't wear a streimel. He wore only a hat, which was like really bad for business. He put on a streimel the first time by our Rebbe's chasaneh. And then three weeks later, on Hey Tevis, Hamisha Betevis, Tavish Betes, the Friedrich Rebbe called the Rebbe in. The Friedrich called him the Rebbe. It's the first entry in the Rebbe's journal. The very first entry in the Rebbe's journal is Hey Tevis, Hamisha Betevis. And the Friedrich Rebbe said to him, I saw my father in a dream. And my father said to me, A dying father in Hitler, which means thank you for putting on a Streimel. But the Rebbe became a Rebbe. Not only he didn't wear Streimel, he didn't even wear one of those holy hats. <laughs> he dressed like Dick Tracy. In 1950, everybody wore hats. The Rebbe looked like an American businessman. So they offered the Rebbe the Shtraimel for public image. They wanted to help him. So the Rebbe asked, is it a gift or is it an inheritance? Which means in plain English, are you giving it to me because it's mine or are you giving it to me as a gift? So the Rebbe was told that, that it's a gift. And the Rebbe said, please keep it. Please keep it. I know for a fact that many years after the Rebbe became a Rebbe, many years, the Rebbe was upstairs in the Dira of the Friedrich Rebbe, and there was a table, and on the table was sitting a stack of Ksavim, manuscripts of Chsidis. The Rebbe picked it up, the Rebbe looked through it, and he turned to his brother-in-law, the Rashag, and he said to his brother-in-law in Yiddish, Dostaf mistama bamir. This arguably should be by me. And there's an eyewitness who says that the Rashag said to the Rebbe, Let's divide it up. And the Rebbe said, Let's see. So, if you want to be very niggledic about it, very chitzaynizik about it, what happened? Friedrich comes to America, he incorporates Lubavitch, he makes everything he owns of any value public. So, what is the family saying? What is the family saying, What are they saying, really? This is a way of avoiding paying taxes. Friedrich Rebbe really didn't consider 770 public property, it's his private property. He didn't consider the library public property, it's his private property. He incorporated the good to the Chabad because he saved money. In other words, he's a liar and a thief. I mean, blunt, get it. That was the position. What was the Rebbe's position? Really? That's what you think of the Friedrich Rebbe? He made 770 public, he made the library public because he wanted to do some, some kind of, make his life easier, but really it was his private property? Now you think that this guy, the Friedrich Rebbe, who you knew, was capable of that kind of impropriety, that kind of dishonesty? And that's really, if you think about it, what the argument was. 
The family said, excuse me, there was always a division of an estate. And the Rebbe said, perhaps, first of all, it's pretty well known that even when there was a division, but they brought this into the court, by the way. The Tzachek and Eged brought into the court this raya from the Remarash. When Remarash passed away, there was a division of the estate. It's a fact. So the Rebbe said, first of all, that was then and this is now. And second of all, when the Rebbe Rashab went to Edin Tehra, he didn't want it. He felt that it shouldn't be. He felt that if he's sitting on the seat of Chabad, everything that Rebbe Marash owned is his, because it's not private, it's public. But in America, everything had to be official, had to be above board. And they basically said that that was simply a means of getting out of paying taxes. And the Rebbe was saying, how could you say that about the Friedrich Rebbe? He wasn't that kind of man. He was a man with, a, if, if, if he felt it was private, he would have made it private. And if he made it public, because that was his true intent. And in a very chitzoniasdika level, this is how the, the two sides met in court. There was a Jew named Chaim Lieberman, who was the secretary of the Friedrich Rebbe, worked his whole life with the Friedrich Rebbe. He testified in court, basically this position that 770 in the library was really the private property of the Friedrich Rebbe. He incorporated it just to avoid paying taxes. And on his deathbed, the Rebbe sent him a message, make sure to do tshuva before you die, for saying that the Friedrich Rebbe is a liar and a thief. That's what it came down to. On a very practical level, that's what it came down to. The Rebbe's position was, you don't touch, I don't say. I promise you, I promise you, you give Lubavitcher Chassidim 24 hours. They would have fixed this problem, boom. The house on President Street, the Rashad could live on President Street. The Rebbe should live in 770. The Rebbe did not want to be Mechal Hashem Lubavitch. He didn't want to embarrass his own family, including the people who had such a deep hatred. Do you know what it means? The Friedrich Rebbe's grandson gets married. Friedrich Rebbe had exactly one grandson. And the Rebbe was told, don't come to the wedding. How sick is that? The Rebbe was told, don't come to the wedding. And he didn't go. And the Rebbe Tzachai didn't go either. How nuts is that? How crazy is that? How, it's unbelievable. It's just mind-blowing. And at the same time, the Rebbe was doing everything in his power. Let's keep it quiet. Let's not embarrass anybody. 1971, Asada Batavis, which is a few days from now, the Rebbe Tzachai passed away. When she died, she left a will. She left a will. I, what I'm about to say, I heard from one of the Rebbe's secretaries, but Yaman Klein told me personally that when she, she passed away at the end of the fast, the Rebbe called in the secretaries and told them what's going to happen. How the Levaya is going to be, how the Shiva is going to be, how the year. The Rebbe was going to say Kaddish for her, for a whole year. Later that night, the Rebbe was told to come upstairs to the second floor. He went upstairs, they showed him the will. The Rebbe came downstairs, he slammed his door. I was really upset. He called the secretaries back in and he said these words. All the things I told you are off the table. There's no Kaddish, there's no Shiva, there's no nothing. Tell me when the Levaya starts, I'm going to go to the Levaya. The Rebbe did not say Kaddish for her. The Rebbe was so upset. Huh? Of course they said Shiva. She wrote a tzavah. And in the tzavah she basically said 40% one daughter, 40% the other daughter, the 20% is the grandson. Her property, she divided it. The Friedrich Rebbe had not left a will. 
So she wrote the will. Now, to be honest, in her, in her schus, she was being led around by the nose. I, I don't think this is what she, I don't think she had her own mind. Rebbe Sacham did with Friedrich his wife, but the fact of the matter is she wrote this will. And the Rebbe knew about it. Most of us didn't know about it. Most of us didn't know. We, nobody understood what was going on. No one understood how deep this was, how personal this was, how much it hurt the Rebbe. And the Rebbe's position was, you don't touch, I don't touch. And that's how it stayed. One of the most upsetting parts of Lubavitch history is the Rebbe began to print my modem of the Rebbe Rashab. The first thing he printed was the Samach the Samach, then he printed the Samach Vov, and then he printed the Eter, and then he printed the Ayin Beis, and then he printed the Ayin Ches, whatever it is. The Rebbe printed Chassidus of the Rebbe Rashab from copies. Copies from Chassidim. Because he didn't have access to the originals. You know where the originals were? They weren't in Russia. They were in 770 Eastern Park on the second floor. And all he had to do was ask. And he wasn't going to ask. He wasn't going to ask. Because it's his. Now, fast forward a few years. The Fidegeb had a library that continued soliciting funds after he passed away. They used to still ask people for money to enhance the library. Chaim Liebman continued buying books. Now you tell me if it's a private property, why they're buying books for a man who's deceased. Kasha for mice. Chaim Liebman got old. And the Friedrich Rebbe's library went into disrepair. It became, it started leaking, Svodim were damaged. He was an old man. So he came to, to Bet 11, to the Rebbe's librarian, and said, please help me save the Friedrich Rebbe's library. Now Bet 11, so Zangezud had no idea, he had no idea of any of this. So he wrote the Rebbe a note that Chaim Lieberman asked me, and Chaim Lieberman was a good guy, he was friends, mm-hmm. asked me to help with the Friedrich library, and he got an answer from the Rebbe, which shook him to the core. And the Rebbe says, you want to work for me and be involved in politics? And you want to involve me in the politics also? And the Rebbe writes to him two choices, either you work for me, or you can go work for him. You can't work for both because you're not going to slap me into politics. He had no idea where this came from. He didn't even know what this was about. Because the whole time it was that this is separate. This is not the Rebbe's. And with Tamal, they wanted the Rebbe's help. The Rebbe says, you can, take, give, you can help them. You can work for me. But you can't do both. But the library is falling to pieces. So this is, this is a very complicated story. The Rebbe gave reluctant reshus to help them repair the library, but they had to hire a new younger man, Wilhelm, who now works in the Rebbe's library, he worked in the Friedrich Rebbe's library. You know, in 770 upstairs, there's a pushka. You know what I'm talking about? There's a big pushka? That's probably one of the richest pushkas in the world. People put tons of money into that pushka. The, the, the label of that pushka was Bedek Habayis, to repair the house. The money from that pushka was collected, and with that money, they built, they redid the upstairs of 770. 770 on the main floor is actually very beautiful. It was done by Chaim Baruch. He's a very capable man. The money to repair 770 upstairs came from that pushka. But when they finished those expenditures, there was still money. They asked the Rebbe permission if they could use their money to repair the Fidik Rebbe's library. The Rebbe somehow gave permission. Later on, the Rebbe wanted an account of every penny. And they started to help Chaim Liebman in the Rebbe's library. This is all private, right? They're doing it. Money from Tzedakah that was given to the Rebbe 770 is being used to help the Friedrich Rebbe's library because Chaim Liebman is an old man. But the Rebbe made it very, very clear. Do not mix me in that library. We're separate. In other words, either it's mine or I want nothing to do with it. 
And of course, the end of the story was that in 1985, Barry took Svarim. Berke came into 770, he took Svarim. 770 had full-time their closed-circuit monitoring. You couldn't go into the library. Everything was being watched on a, on a camera. There was only one time when those cameras were turned off. When the Rebbe was fabrenging for technical reasons, they had to turn those cameras off. And he knew it. So while the Rebbe was fabrenging, he would sneak into the library. There was one closet where all the precious... That a, cli- a closet full of svarim, where each volume was worth thousands of dollars, and he started to empty uh, books. He took over 400 svarim, 430 svarim. Wilhelm, who was helping Chaim Liebman with this library, started to notice that books are missing. So it took a while till they figured it all out. They eventually put in closed circuit monitoring even during the fabric, and they caught him. And of course he was, con- he was uh, confronted. He says, you're stealing Svarim, give him back. He says, they're mine. The famous conversation between the Rebbe and her sister. If the Svarim are yours, why is your son coming like a Ganev in the middle of the night? So Chana uh, got really upset. My son is Nishka Ganev. My son is not a thief. But he took it like a thief. I went on Shlichus. My Shlichus, Gimel Thomas was Shabbos, 1985. That's now how many years ago? It's 38 years ago. Before we went, we heard a rumor that the Rebbe is calling a meeting of Agudah Sidi Chabad. No one knows what it's about. We went on Shlichus Sunday. Our Shlichus started on Monday. Hey, Thomas. That's the official date, the beginning of our Shlichus. Um, but we were leaving New York. We heard a rumor that the Rebbe called meetings. There's stuff going on. The Rebbe called. There was a, a good city Chabad had a charter, right? There were people on the charter. But the good city charter was made in 1940. That was 1987. A lot of the people on that charter had passed away. But there were enough people still alive. You know, Rabbi Mentlik, the old timers, and Ashag, and Zalman Garari, the Rebbe, Chadakov. And the Rebbe said, there's something happening that requires us to renew the charter of Agudah Sidi Chabad. They'll put living people on the, in the place of the people who had passed because there's, there's an, an issue that we have to deal with. There were several meetings. At first, the Rebbe called only Eltere. Then the Rebbe called younger people, you know, like Avram Shem, Avram Shem Tev, and Rabbi Moshe Hurst, and these people, David Rask, and Yankel Hecht, and he put them on the charter. The Rebbe explained to them what's going on, that the Svarim were taken, and we may have to, we have to, we have to fight this battle. 35 years in the waiting. And the Rebbe left it as long as they left it, now he took Svarim. And of course, one of the most poignant moments, one of the most painful moments of that Pasha is, the Rebbe had several meetings outside of his door with the leaders of Lubavitch. And the Rebbe said to them, I'm going to ask you a question. But I want you to know before I ask it that I've already decided what I'm going to do. I just want to hear how you think. Which is very weird. No, there's a, I know what I want, I want to hear what you think. And the Rebbe said, Barry took Svarim. He's claiming they're his. When they belong to us, they belong to me, they belong to Aguch. Should we fight or should we settle? The Rebbe asked that to the leadership of Lubavitch. Should we fight or should we settle? Should we go to court and fight this out? Or give him what he wants and let him go away? So there was somebody there, one of the people in that assemblage, in good faith, he was a good guy, he was a chassidish yid al-azachim. When the Rebbe asked that question, what, is, what do you think, should we fight or should we settle? He said to the Rebbe, I think we should settle, because Lubavitch doesn't need this now. 
1985, there's a mess, family feud, Labavitch, a big world organization, the Mishpach Kumtishay Tzazamin. And the Rebbe was really not happy with that answer. He slammed his fist into his door and he shouted, Nain! He says, no, we can't settle. Because this is not about books. This is about the banko. This is about the chair I sit on. Am I sitting on the feet of the Rebbe's chair or did I create a new movement? And as far as the Rebbe was concerned, if he's not sitting on the feet of the Rebbe's chair, he resigned yesterday. He took the position as the Rebbe Nayatz. And the Rebbe said, this is an issue of Nesias. This is not a fight about books, this is a fight about credibility. Am I the continuation of the Fidik Rebbe's work or am I not the continuation of the Fidik Rebbe's work? And the Rebbe said, we have to fight. So Rabbi Krinsky fabrenged here once years ago and he was involved. So the Rebbe said that this should really be held by Elter Chsidim, by people like Meher Aftsen and Mendel Futterfas. He says, but you need people who understand legalese. So the Rebbe called it Yudel and Avremel. Now they're old men, then they were young men. And the Rebbe said, you have to handle this. And Berke is selling Svarim, he's selling books. And Berke was very careful. Every Sefer he sold was filled with a receipt. He didn't do it, he stole the books clandestinely. But he had the books appraised and he sold them fair market value. Everybody who bought a book had a receipt. It was all on board. Because he felt like he's illegally, it's his. And the Rebbe, the Rebbe said, Oismensch. And he, so they sat around. Bottom line is he went to Nat Lewin, to a lawyer, and said, what should we do? And Nat Lewin said, first thing you do is you make a lien. A lien means stop them from actually selling the books. In Hebrew, it's called an equal. In other words, it's not yet the court case. It's simply saying, excuse me, wait. This contention. So they did that with the Rebbe's permission. They went to a court and they made a lien. That, in other words, the person is selling Svarim. So the court said he can't sell the books anymore. And the books were taken from him and put into a repository, I think in the state of New Jersey. He took, from what I understand, 470 books. He sold around 70 of them and some of those volumes, one book, one book, $180,000. Today it's like a million dollars. The books were very valuable. 400 Svarim were put in the repository. They stayed there for two years or three years until the Rebbe got the Svarim back and they prepared for the trial. Did he lose the one that he sold? We had to buy each one back. The Rebbe said, anybody who bought a safe, come to me with the receipt, I'll pay the full. We paid, we paid to buy back every safe. Now, Rabbi Krinsky said we got back every single book. Rabbi Bogomilski said we got back almost every single book. But we paid. The people who bought Svarim, who bought it not knowing, you came with your receipt and the Rebbe gave, he reimbursed you. He didn't give you, he didn't buy it, he didn't give you a profit. He reimbursed you. The Rebbe said publicly, I'll pay anybody. You come with me receipt. I will give you back the full money. And people came. People were afraid. Huh? Whether they did or they didn't, I promise you he didn't. Whatever he owned went into the court case. Um, the Rebbe bought the box back at full market value. People were afraid. Because when the Rebbe started to speak publicly, you never heard the Rebbe talk like this. The Rebbe was very, very upset. The Rebbe, first of all, I'll get to that in a second. First of all, the Rebbe said that the Fidik Rebbe is alive and you cannot take the books of a living person. The Rebbe said when you take a book from the Fidik Rebbe's room, it's like taking a knife and cutting flesh from a living person's body. 
And the Rebbe also said, I see clearly that this is a bomb and it will explode. People were afraid. When the Rebbe said publicly, even people who were not so from, they didn't want to mess. Almost all of the svarim that, we, that, were, that were sold, we bought back. It cost probably millions of dollars. The Rebbe paid for every sefer that was sold to retrieve. The reason there's a question about it giving all of them back is because not all of the books were that rare. Some of the books, there were many copies on the market, so it's very difficult to know if the one we bought back was the same one that was sold. But the Rubam Kakulam, this is what I understand, the Rebbe paid for, and he bought the books back. Then started the whole preparation for the trial. This is, this is the summer of 85. The trial took place probably in December of 85, about four or five months later. The trial lasted for three weeks. The Rebbe went to the Oihel every day of the trial. I mean, of course, one of the great miracles of the trial, the truth is it's an unbelievable miracle, was that in the preliminary, in the pre-trial discussions, they deposed the Rebetzin, you know that, right? They came to President Street, they spent four hours talking to the Rebetzin, asking her questions. Nobody's ever seen the full video. Everyone's seen two hours, because the two hours that you see is our lawyers talking to her. But there's two more hours where the other lawyers were talking to her. And it was, it was very painful. They were mean to her. It's a video, but no one's ever seen it. But the last 60 seconds, you do have. After four hours, everything was exhausted. And the lawyer says to her, so in your opinion, to whom did the library belong? And the Rebetzin said, the books belong to the Chassidim because my father belonged to the Chassidim. And from the corner of the screen, you could see the opposing lawyer slam his pencil down on the table. Because he knew he lost it. Rabbi Krinsky told us that when they wanted to depose the Rebetzin, he got very nervous. He said, the Rebbe, how is that going to work? And the Rebetzin said, don't worry. The Rebbe said to him in English, she will pass with flying colors. And she passed with flying colors. And I heard recently, Rabbi Krinsky had recently that the trial lasted three weeks. The last day of the trial was a Friday. And the judge asked to see her deposition. Again. And he watched for about 10, 15 minutes. And the judge's comment was remarkable. He was very impressed with the Rebbe's. Remarkable. The Rebbe said publicly that the Rebbe's had a big hand in winning the case of this one. So for three weeks, the courtroom was filled with chassidim and Lubavitch was on trial. So both sides brought professional witnesses and all kinds of whatever it was to explain the tradition of Lubavitch, the history of Lubavitch, the, the trajectory of the relationship between chassidim and the Rebbe and the Rebbe and chassidim. One side is arguing that the Rebbe's private property is private and the other side is arguing that the Rebbe's private property is public. The two big things they had in their favor was number one, they had precedent. They proved that when the Rebbe Rashi passed away, there was a dentator. When the Rebbe Rashi passed away, there was no dentator. You know why? Because the Rebbe Rashi had one son. There was nobody to fight with. And the other thing that they had in their favor is that there's no such thing in American law as public property. There's no such thing, except government. If you have an organization, you have a, a, a thousand people belong to an organization, and they raise money. They have officers, five or six or seven people who, president, vice president, treasurer, legally they're the owners. And they can do whatever they want. There's no, the thousand people who elected them don't have any power. 
In American law, everything has to belong to somebody. It can't belong to a community. If it belongs to a community, tell me who's the owner. And there have to be one name, or two names, or three names, or four names. Not everybody. <coughs> so we came into the court and argued that this is public. That the Agudah City Chabad is a public union of Lubavitcher Hasidim that includes each one of us. And the building and the library and everything that belongs to all of us. There's no precedent of this in American law. So when we won the case, the judge actually created a new law. And the new law is that there's such a thing as private public ownership. That thousands of people could own something together. They may have officers, people who are representing them, but those officers don't own it. It belongs to the public. I've been told that since then, there have been RICO cases, very complicated public cases, where this case was cited as a precedent for the idea of public ownership. Because it didn't exist before. So the lawyers, our lawyers, when it came to the trial, wanted to discredit her will. They wanted to discredit her will. They wanted to say that she was a bottle and she didn't know what she was doing. And then he says, no, don't discredit her will. Argued that it wasn't hers. And the lawyer said to the Rebbe, there's no such thing. It has to belong to someone. So the famous words of the Rebbe, the, the lawyer said to the Rebbe, do you want us to do what you want without our own opinions? He says, no, 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 I want you to use your own judgment. But I want, you, I want to win you over that you should think like I'm thinking. Go into the court and don't say that the will was illegal. Don't say that she was able to bottle. Say it wasn't hers. And it was a very tricky case. And the lawyers argued what the Rebbe said and they quoted that one piece of paper from Marx. And the judge paskined that there is a new phenomena of public and private. A few people run an organization, but it doesn't belong to them, it belongs to every member of the union. And as long as the Lubavitcher Hasidim, the property of Agudas Hasidim Chabad is ours. And no one person come along and sell it. It doesn't belong to him or her, it belongs to us. So there was this huge trial. And if you go into that court, it was like a fabrengen. You learned about Maimed, and you learned about Tiskashiris, and you learned about all tradition. Now, have you ever read the judge's verdict? It took him a whole year to write. You see how he got it. The judge writes, after listening to three weeks of testimony and researching and studying it, he, he figured out that it used to be informal. In other words, you gave money to the Rebbe. If the Rebbe put it in the sewer, you didn't say boo. But there was this understanding that the money the Chassidim give to a Rebbe is based on this private-public arrangement. That even though the Rebbe is a private person and the Rebbe can do whatever he wants, but it's, it's, it's a mix of private and public. And the judge writes clearly that in the old country it didn't matter. So it was done as a Uma Fetel. But in America and in the big city, everything had to be legal. So the, he writes, as soon as the Fiyadik Rebbe got here, he incorporated Lubavitch on the good of Sidi Chabad, and he meant it. He wasn't trying to avoid paying taxes. He meant it because it was really always that way. The Goy hot us dead head. That even though in the old country it was never official, and that's why when the Rebbe passed, there was a dentator. And the Rebbe reluctantly went along with his brothers in dividing up the estate against his own judgment. But in America, everything had to be above board. And the judge understood that really always it was that way. That the pnimius of the Chassid Rebbe relationship is to quote the Rebbetzin. The Rebbe belongs to Chassidim. And if the Rebbe belongs to Chassidim, everything he owns belongs to Chassidim. Because this is, the Rebbe can do whatever he wants. He's a king. He has all the power in the world. 
But it isn't his. It's ours. And the guy who does the head, the guy got this. And when the verdict came down, it was a Tuesday, we won 100%. Everybody expected some kind of a settlement. The judge had a black and white verdict. The private property of the Rebbe belongs to every chassid. And as long as there's people who are carrying the banner of Lubavitch and living in the life that the Rebbe set forward, it belongs to them. And it was a 100% victory. Beyond anybody's world, people who knew what was going on behind the scenes, they were afraid we would lose. Because there was no precedent in American law for public. Something belongs to a whole community, there's no such a thing. As a few officers, it belongs to them. They can do what they want. You know, when the shuls in the bad neighborhoods were sold, they were sold by the whole congregation. They were sold by the people whose names were on the charter. What about the rest of the people? Who cares about them? But a shul belongs, to, halakhically, a shul belongs to a community. A shul in a city like New York, according to Jewish law, belongs to every Jew in the world. You cannot sell a shul in New York City without permission of every yid in the world. There's no such concept in American law. This case, this case created that, that model, that idea, that something which is being managed by one person or a few people is really the property of the whole community, and it's theirs. They tried going to the Torah? What happened was, because we made the equal, because we went into a court to get him to stop selling this for them, they wanted that. Their lawyer said, we started in court, we're going to finish in court. They didn't want a dentator. But they didn't want to be the ones not to make the dentator. So he was daring us. He kept selling books. So we had no choice but to make an equal. And that's how they got us into the court. And Nat Lewin said publicly, he says, the first time in my entire career as a lawyer, that someone came to me with the page of the Shulchan Aruch. When Yudel came to him the first time, the Rebbe sent him with the page of the Cheshav Mishpat, explaining the head to go to Erkois. Why Api Allah, he was allowed to go to a Goyesha court, even though according to Jewish law, a Jew and a Jew have a dispute, you have to go to a Bezin. So it was Tuesday morning. Chamisha Batavis, it was 9 o'clock in the morning, the, the court summoned both sides. They went down to the court. Well, there were two lawyers. It was, there was uh, Nat Lewin, and the second lawyer was Shestak. Shestak, he'd been involved in earlier. The Rebbe said to add him. Yudel went to Nat Lewin. Avremel's person, Avremel Shemta's person was Shestak. The Rebbe said he had helped Lubavitch in the 1970s. He helped get the Svodim from Poland. So they worked together. Um, so the lawyers from our side were summoned, and of course Avremel and Yudel went, and the lawyers from their side went, and the judge gave the verdict. Yudel came back to 770. He walked into the Rebbe, the Rebbe was working, and he says, we won. We won hands down, we won 100%. The Rebbe didn't even look up. He kept right on going. Whatever he was doing, continued doing. I mean, the Rebbe probably already knew from before how it was all gonna play out. And the Rebbe said, but tell the Rebbe, go tell the Rebbe, because the Rebbe's agonized. By the way, I wanna tell you a piece of history, which I think is very important. A year before, the trial took place in 85, 86. The verdict came down in the beginning of 87, in probably January. I remember in the winter of 1986, there was a magazine called the Beis Chayenu. Beis Chayenu was all the, all the news not fit to print, right? The official magazine of the Mavit was called Kfar Chabad. But Kfar Chabad was very careful about what they would publish. So the Baruch made a, a, a magazine to print all the stuff that Kvachabad didn't think was worthy. Everything that the Rebbe did was in this magazine. One day in Tevis, Tavshem Mevav, the Rebbe walked out of 770 carrying his luluf. 
Memvav, a year before we won, there's a picture. If you can get a hold of the base Chayeno, they charge a million dollars for the set. But if you can get a hold in the a year before we won the case that ever walked out of 770 Kangalulav in the middle of the winter. Now, how does it look to you? Forgive me, God forbid. They have a bottle. He forgot that Sukkot is in Tishrei and it's Mitten Tevin. So this, this, is a, this is a record that you could trace. Now, boys, what does Lulav represent? What does Lulav represent? And if you look at the date, you'll see that it was right after the case, after the actual trial. In other words, a year before the judge wrote his verdict, there's a photo of the Rebbe walking out of 770 middle of Tavis. The Beis Chayenu had it on the cover, and the old Lubavitch Chassidim was saying, you're embarrassing Lubavitch, you're showing the whole world that the Rebbe's even bottle. Mitten Tavis, get that to Lulav. The Lulav represents the Da Notzach. The Medrash says, when two nations fight a war, and then the war is over, how do you know who won? The one that makes the parade. And the Medrash says, what's the parade? The Lulav is a spear, and the Esrik is a, <laughs> I don't know what they call it, they didn't have grenades in the times of the Medrash, but the Medrash says that the Lulav and the Esrik are the Da'an Notzach. The Rebbe walks out of 770 in the middle of the winter, right after the trial, which was a year before the verdict. And please, like I always tell people, do not trust me, look it up. Get a hold of the, the base, the, the, uh, what do they call it? The base Chayenu magazines. I have the whole collection someplace. But the, the, <laughs> they never walked out of 770 holding a load. They put it on the front cover. And the old Hasidim was screaming, Meshuggah. What's Meshuggah? The Rebbe walked out mitten the Dalulav. He said, yes, sir. You put a picture. No, it's embarrassing the Rebbe. Why? Because the Rebbe forgot Nebuch. It's not Sukkis, right? The Rebbe didn't forget nothing. A year before the judge Paskin, the Rebbe held a lulav. The Rebbe knew way before well, how it was going to play out. So the Rebbe didn't react at all. He said, tell the Rebbe, Shoy, comes time for Mincha. In those days, the Rebbe David Mincha upstairs in the small zal. So they said to the Rebbe, there's a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people came to David Mincha. If the Rebbe wouldn't mind going, and says, okay, I'll go downstairs. The Rebbe came downstairs. The walls were shaking. There were people who were out cold, shikid, done, finished. <laughs> the party started at 9.30 in the morning. Now it's 2.30 in the afternoon, 3.15. The place was rocking. Everybody came. The Rebbe walked to the front of the shul and made believe he doesn't see. He didn't swing his hands. He didn't smile. He showed as if nothing. Goonish. No reaction at all. This is after the verdict came out? The day the verdict came out. We partied for a week. I missed it. I was in California. The Roach wouldn't let us come in. But for a week, from Tuesday morning till Monday night, <laughs> 770 was non-stop fabrenging. And in the middle, you had an Asada Batavis. Don't ask. <laughs> People didn't eat an Asada Batavis, but they just kept eating for Matzah Shabbos. You understand? <laughs> they, they, they didn't stop on time in the morning. The Ramesh Rebbe was here. He got very upset. He wrote to the Rebbe. Don't ask. But a week. We parted a week. Anyway, I'm in California. We got the news when we came from the mikveh. It was about 9 o'clock. Citizens California was 7 to 8.30. Shachar was 9 o'clock. So we came back from the mikveh 10 to 9 and we did Danotzach. Don't ask. I mean, we, in our way, we, we did what we could do. We were Hamri Barchamri. It was God's failure. The Rosh let us make a goidel. One of us was allowed to go to the Rebbe. And we were stuck in California. We were three hours behind, so, so 3.15 in New York was 12.15 in California. So of course we put on the hookup of that mincha. They didn't say tachnon. 
And don't even think about saying Dachnan Hei Tevis. Don't even think about it. And any old croak who has questions about saying Hei Tachnan, in my opinion, he doesn't see the Rebbe as a Rebbe. The Rebbe is different than the Fidik Rebbe. If you have a question, if you should say Hei Tachnan today, then you should say Tachnan for sure. For sure, without a question, on your discus. Otherwise, you're messed up. You're messed up. You don't get it at all. You don't know, you think it's a fight about books. It's not about books, it's about Benkel. Anyway, in middle of Chazar Sashat, Yonus and Hackner, gets on the mic, the Rebbe asked for a chumash. In other words, the Rebbe sort of noticed that there's something happening. The place is crazy! And the Rebbe macht the chnish visit for the Gansama, he said. In middle of Chazar Sashat, asked for a chumash, and after minute, Rebbe spoke a sicha. That sicha has in it a detail. That's mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. And I'll talk about it more tonight. And I'm going to stop now. I'm not going to do it, keep you a whole day. The Rebbe spoke about the Svarim three times. And I'll talk about that tonight. He spoke about it in the summer of 85. He spoke about it during the actual trial, which is December of 85, January of 86, Hanukkah, Memvav. And he spoke about it again when we won. When we won the trial on Tuesday, Hamisha Batevis, about 36 years ago today, Memzai, 36 years today after Mincha, the Rebbe spoke a Sikha, and the Rebbe said, the reason there was a, a case is because there is an argument, these are the Rebbe's words directly, as Agudas, Chasidas, Chabad is Nish, Genug, active. Agudas, Chasidas, Chabad is not doing enough. And that's why there was a case. And the Rebbe said something unbelievable. Never said it's impossible to say we haven't done enough. It's impossible to say we haven't done enough. The Alter Rebbe had a kitrug because they weren't doing enough. The Mitla had a kitrug because they weren't doing enough. Our Rebbe says in front of a room full of us, fed post-Holocaust Jews, it's impossible to say that we didn't do enough. It's impossible to say that we didn't do enough. So we, if we did enough, why is there a case? The Rebbe says, my only answer is because the Abishta wants us to do more. That's what the Rebbe said. It's impossible to say about our generation, about the Shluchim of our generation, the only explanation is that they want us to do more. Anyway, we partied for a week. Monday night at Beis Tevis, the Rebbe spoke a sicha, and he fixed our wagons big time. He said that for the next 30 days, every 10 days, you have to be tested in Nigla and you have to be tested in Chesidus. And the Rebbe said, if you don't take a test, I'm going to assume that means that you're not prepared for the test. And the Rebbe said in Yiddish, Mer Feldenisht. You know what that means? There can't be anything worse than that. If I don't get your marks, I'm going to assume that you were not prepared for the test. And I can't tell you how bad that is. Mer Feldenisht. I heard a story, I have a woman that I work with, it's a very Hasidic lady, her name is Hannah Gorowitz, she, she was related to my grandmother. My grandmother was married twice. Her first husband was killed in the war. So my father called my grandmother Mumarachal, because she was, a, she was a stepmother. And Hannah Gorowitz called her Mumarachal, because she had been married to her mother's brother. Kusha died, she was killed by, by the Nazis. So my grandmother, who was then about 75 years old, Calls up Hanukkah, which was a very chassidish woman, and she says to her, the Rebbe wants everybody should do a test every 10 days. I want you to do the test for me, and I want you to send into the Rebbe a report of what I did. My grandmother never learned a day in any school. Forget about a yeshiva, she didn't learn nothing. 
She grew up in Russia. So Chana Garowitz tells my aunt, grandmother, the Rebbe doesn't mean you. It doesn't mean you. You can talk, okay, you're good. So my grandmother says to her, Nein, nein, nein. Ich will sein verschrieben beim Rebbe. I want to be recorded by the Rebbe. And so they made a deal, what she would say, extra tillim, and every 10 days they reported. It's a beautiful story of a simple woman. Ich will sein verschrieben beim Rebbe. I want to be written down by the Rebbe. It's a beautiful story. It's just, a, if you knew her, you would be surprised that this happened. You, you didn't think that she had that sensitivity. She was a great mother. She was a great balabasta, but she was an uneducated woman. But she wanted, So for 30 days, everybody, I remember the Gemara, I still remember, and yet the Roche will never forgive him, because he had no mercy. He, he gave us tests, and he marked them so strict. I remember those Gemaras. is a very hard daf. With all the fake, the rises, with the abundance. But we, 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 we tested. We had to give reports to the rabbi. Then, of course, there was an appeal. The appeal was won the following year, and the second time around, the rabbi did not let the, the party happen. The rabbi said, The first luchas were given with a lot of tumult, they were broken. The second look was given quietly, and those are the ones we have. Rebbe said, don't make a tumult. And of course, you all know the story. It culminated on a Monday. Beis Kislev, I'm sure you've heard this. The Rebbe sent specific instructions to the schools. Don't send the kids to 770. They should stay in their classes. And I don't know how to explain it. The kids came. There was a day that the books were actually returned. The Rebbe walked out of his room to go to the oil, and the Rebbe saw hundreds of people, and the Rebbe got so upset. This video of it, the Rebbe was beside himself. That day, the Svarim were actually returned. The 400 Svarim that had been deposited in a repository in New Jersey, in a safe from the government, was released, and they were brought back to 770. I heard a story that the boxes were sitting outside the Rebbe's room. One night, the Rebbe came out of his office with paper holding the list of all 400 books. He looked through every box to make sure that every single safer was there. Shabbos, Vayetze, the Rebbe sort of apologized. The Rebbe got really, on that Monday, the Rebbe, and I want to be honest with you, I was sitting in 770 and learning. I wasn't one of those people who was afraid the Rebbe was going to run away. I remember I was sitting, I remember exactly where I was sitting. All of a sudden, the room, hard as we fly into the room and everybody grabs a book. We're going to grab the tilim, we're going to grab the sinner and open up a book. I wasn't outside, I was learning, I was in Zal, I was doing what I was supposed to do. And the Rebbe was so upset. Shabbos, the Rebbe almost like apologized. The tone was very, very positive. And the Rebbe said, somebody asked me why I got so upset. And somebody was the Rebbe. Chassidim will sich freien in the Simcha von Asiderein. Chassidim want to celebrate the joy of the Fiedic Rebbe. Why am I so upset? So the Rebbe said, es ist doch die Dan Nozach. It's die Dan Nozach. What does die Dan Nozach mean? Die Dan, the Hasvarim Nozach. It's a victory of the books. The Rebbe says, as soon as the books came back, what did I do? I sat down and I learned the Svarim. And the Rebbe said, I remember the tone, but it was all very good natured. Shabbos was very sweet. Das is the dad. I'm asking you. This is the dad to stand outside and look at a person. Learn the books. And I just want you to know that after we won this case, people got involved. Millions of dollars were raised. The Friedrich Rebbe's library and the Rebbe's library we were joined. In other words, when we won the case, it became ours. The, if you know the deck, if you look at 770, on the right side, there's a huge deck. That deck sits on top of a basement. 
The two buildings are connected under the ground and the two buildings are connected on top of the ground. But you have that overpass. And they put in millions of dollars and they push it saved the Fidel Kebbe's library. The books were dying. They were being neglected. And they spent a lot of money. They have all kinds of air systems. To, old books have to be preserved in, a, in, a, in an environment that's free from all kinds of things that destroy. Old books get destroyed by bacteria, by microorganisms. There was millions of dollars invested that Ebbe's library was made what it should be. Um, then Hamisha Batavis Memchas, 88, there was a big fight in 770. I wasn't here, I was in Russia. Hey uh, Tavis was on a Thursday, I think. Maybe it was Shabbos. The Bochum put up a sign to make a big Fabrengen. So the Rabbim took it down. The Bochum ripped the sign. The Rabbim took it down. Why? Because the Rebbe's position had been the case is over. For, I remember we got a message in California. The case is over. Forget about it. Don't talk about it. Don't read. The Rebbe said, don't read the judge's verdict. It's finished. Over. And the Rebbe had gotten so upset based Kislev. The way the Rebbe reacted based Kislev, the Rebbe was so upset. It, it was impossible to describe how upset the Rebbe was. This video of it. The Rebbe is indescribably upset. And the Rebbeson passed away two months later. And a lot of people connected. The Rebbe was so upset. So when it came to first Hey Tavis, they didn't know what to do. The Bacham said, what do you mean? It's a Yomtev. And the Gaboyim said, you want the Rebbe to scream at you? He's going to scream at me. Bottom line is, the Bacham got their sign to stay up. The Rebbe started the Fabreng in Shabbos. There's a sign on the wall. <laughs> that says, Yoy my boy, Hey Tavis. And the Rebbe said, that the Gemara says about Hanukkah that the miracle of Hanukkah happened it wasn't made until Yom Tov right away it was made the next year so officially the establishment of the Yom Tov of Hamisha Batavis is not 36 years ago 35 years ago Tovshin Memchas 88 the Rebbe made it into a Yom Tov and the Rebbe said Hagim, Hey Tavis you buy Svarim Hey Tavis you fix old Svarim Hey Tavis you build libraries Hey Tavis you enhance libraries and the Rebbe asked especially that people they made a public a request, an official request, that people who have Svarim, whether they're new Svarim or they're rare Svarim, to send them to the library of Aguda Sidi Chabad. The Rebbe made an official pitch, an official appeal, that people should send Svarim to the Rebbe's library. And from that point forward, every year, Hamisha Batavis, I mean, the Rebbe had passed away, the Rebbe stopped fabrenging, the Rebbe used to give dollars. The Rebbe once gave dollars to buy a Sefer. I'm giving you a dollar to buy a book. Not for Tzedakah, to buy a Sefer. On Chabisha Batavis. There were some things that happened that were unpleasant. Somebody, I mean, the facts were someone beat up Chana. There was a personal suit made against the Rebbe for incitement. It was very unpleasant. The fight didn't finish. The case was not fully over till 1990, to Nun. From Rabbi Krinsky, I heard it was the end of Sukkot. From somebody else, it was Tavis. Bottom line, it, took, it, it dragged on a couple more years until it was over, finished, completely over. When it was completely finished, Rabbi Krinsky, I heard it from him directly, he went into the Rebbe, and he told the Rebbe, it's done, no more, over. And the Rebbe said in Yiddish, If the case is over, I can go say chsidis. And I don't know when the Rebbe did that, because the Rebbe has stopped saying my bottom. If that's the case, you can go say chsidis. That's the quote. There should be peace in the whole world, and afterwards the Rebbe said. There should be peace in Israel. But those are the Rebbe's words. Because the whole Kitrug was a question of the Rebbe's continuity. And now that it's over, so the continuity is established. Now, the last thing I'm going to tell you is that in 1992, Nun Beis, the year of the stroke, 
Hey Tavis was on a Thursday, like it was this year. Shabbos was I and Tavis. And the Rebbe spoke about the Svarim again, as he did each year. But in the Fabrengen of Shabbos, Zion Tevis, Tov Shid, Nun Beis, the Rebbe didn't say Hey Tevis. The Rebbe said Chamisha Batevis. And not once, but ten times. That entire Fabrengen is Chamisha. Behind me stood Yenis and Reinitz, one of the holiest Jews in Lubavitch, who lives in New Haven, if you know him. And he pokes me in the back. He says, The Yom Tevatanaya Nomen. The Yom Tev has a new name. It's no longer Hey Tevis. Rebbe had a stroke two months later. Had the Rebbe not had a stroke by Nun Gimel, it would have probably happened again and it would have become official. So this is my, one of my many shtick that today is not Hey Tevis, it's Chamisha Tevis. And the premius of this we'll talk about tonight in Mitzvah Shem.